At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Without any further hesitation, I would like to bring up our special podcast guests for tonight who came in, flew into town to do the special event, our folks from the Real Blend podcast. I'd like to bring them out right now. Thank you. Hello, Los Angeles. Hello, New Beverly. I would like to introduce ourselves. Um, I know you guys aren't here for us necessarily, but we're glad that you guys are here with us. We are The Real Blend Podcast. My name is Sean O'Connell. I'm the managing editor at Cinema Blend, and I co-host the show with Kevin McCarthy and Jake Hamilton. We've been doing the show for about three years now, and one of the things that I think helps us stand out is that we specialize in doing deep dive conversations with filmmakers that we adore. And of course, one of those filmmakers is the man who I'm assuming you're all here to see tonight. Yeah, they're definitely not here for us. <laughs> now, what's interesting is the, the first time we had this man we're talking about on our show a couple of years ago, he did that very Hollywood thing. I'm sure everyone in this room has heard it. He said, you know, we should do this again sometime. But unlike a lot of people who say something like that, he actually followed up. So we are beyond thrilled to share our third conversation with this man tonight, live with you. Yeah. All right, and I want to mention the Real Blend podcast is honored and privileged to introduce a filmmaker that has been quintessential in all of our film journeys and one of the greatest filmmakers to ever do it in the history of cinema, Mr. Quentin Tarantino. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming out. Well, Quentin, it's an absolute honor to be with you today. We absolutely love being in your theater. We want to say thank you very much for having us. Well, thanks for coming all the way from New York. I really appreciate it. No, we, we are honored. And one of the beauties of being here today is this is the day of your book release, which yeah. is really cool. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to... Yeah, definitely. We have read... 
We have all read all 400 pages of this book. <laughs> we, are, we think it's one of the greatest, coolest things because it expands on the Hollywood universe in a way that I just was so happy to read. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I'm interested in knowing is that throughout your career, you've had film release dates, right? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'm wondering in terms of your, your feelings on the day a film is released versus the day your first book is being released and kind of how you feel in terms of difference <laughs> in, in those two elements. Well, it's, it's drastically less pressure, all right, because, uh, you know, I mean, books are released on a certain date and there's that first week that they're, that, you know, that they're out there and they're available. But, you know, I mean, a, you know, a book has a year, it has two years, it has longer than that to actually do what it's going to do. I know there's a certain amount that when it first drops that there's a thing. But, you know, the thing about movies is you work for two years on something, you kill yourself, and it all comes down to an opening weekend. It's like the difference between the film being a flop and being a hit is going to be that a, that a bunch of people leave their house and, and, and when they can do anything in the world they wanted to do, did they leave their house and go to a movie and set their ass in a seat and buy a ticket and, and watch a movie? And it's the difference between uh, a disaster or a success. And like, you know, things can happen, the, you know, in, in, in today's world, you know, by the fifth week, that's, you know, it's pretty much on its way out of town. Now that doesn't that doesn't say that's it as far as a movie's concerned, but as far as like it being a, a successful venture, it is. And um, so, you know, it's just you know, it's 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 crazy exciting. I've been waiting for for uh, uh, June 29th to happen for like about three months now, but it just doesn't have that pressure of like the difference between success and failure is what happens today. <laughs> There's a chapter in the book that everybody is holding, uh, and it's called Misadventure. And I know that people are going to be really looking forward to diving into this one because we learn a lot more about Cliff yeah. uh, and what happened on the boat. Last time you talked to us, <laughs> what may or may not have happened on the boat, um, last time we talked to us, you told us that you used that chapter almost in its entirety mm-hmm. to lure Brad to do the movie um, yeah. and use that as a basis. So what I was wondering is how much of this book did you actually have written before you even shot a single frame of the movie? Um I had the first thing I ever wrote, like I started writing this, I wasn't in any hurry to finish it, but I think it was somewhere around after Death Proof. I think I was actually in a hotel in Austin doing press on Death Proof. No, I wasn't, no, I take that back, not Austin. I was in a hotel in London doing death, doing press on Death Proof when I actually wrote like the first things on the book. And it was, I'm sorry, not to give you guys my ass here. All right, uh, 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 I think uh, uh, I wrote uh, uh, three chapters all in, in uh, novel form. And it was the Marvin, uh, uh, the opening sequence, the Marvin, uh, it's, it's quite different from what that was, but the Marvin uh, uh, Rick scene, it was the misadventure chapter, which was much longer in the book in that, in that first I- incarnation and uh, the Aldo Ray chapter. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. Those were the first, those were the first things I wrote. And then like, then for the next year, I just kept rewriting the Marvin sequence. And then I thought about turning that into a play. And then eventually about like two years later, I go, oh, who are you fucking kidding? This is a movie. You can turn it into a movie. <laughs> you know, one of the details I love most about your characters is a lot of them are readers. Like we know Vincent yeah. Vega is literally reading moments before he's killed. Rick Dalton's obviously yeah. a reader. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Max Cherry, I think is, is reading yeah, yeah. before he picks up. He's like up. reading a Len Dayton novel. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, so knowing how many of your characters are readers, which of your characters would see this novel at a store and go, yeah, I'm going to read that? Oh, that's interesting, actually. Um, 
Well, probably not the two guys. I mean, uh, Cliff Booth's not going to read a novelization. You know, he's going to read a Max Brand Western or a, a, a Mickey Spillane uh, a crime story or something like that. And uh, um, I don't see Rick buying novelizations. I just, you know, it's hard enough to get Rick to read scripts. <laughs> Are there any else for any of the, any of your other films? Like, would, would Vincent Vega read this? Would Jules read this book when he's done oh, reading the Bible? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, okay, well, I don't think most of them are that hip to novelizations. I can actually see, I, I could see if Vincent Vega saw this movie and liking it and, like, uh, 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 poss- uh, possibly buying it or so. I mean, like, think about that, actually. Uh, um, hmm, let me think. Clarence. Clarence Worley would uh, Clarence Worley would buy this book and read it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. By the way, I, I do want to mention how much I love the way you released this. I when I read this all four hundred pages, I love the way it folds. I love the way it turns. It's an incredible experience. My one of my favorite chapters in the book is when you discuss Cliff's journey becoming a Kurosawa fan. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I love that uh, particular moment, and I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you about that because in the book you explain that he watches his first two films and then he sees Throne of Blood. And there's a moment when he watches Throne of Blood and he goes, I'm officially a fan. I I wanted to ask you, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 finish your question. I I was just going to say, what, what, do you remember that moment for you, for Kurosawa? And do you remember that moment for you with Leone? Uh, Well, not Leone, because I, uh, um, I I remember him, I mean, he's one of the first, it's one of my first movie memories where I was seeing, like, think, uh, 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 Fistful of Dollars and Good and the Bad and the Ugly on a double feature together because uh, my mom was a big fan of Clint Eastwood so we saw all of his movies at that time. Um, uh, but like uh, with Kurosawa, I think it was, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd seen a couple of films. I'd seen, I'd, I, never took a, I never took any film classes, but I did actually, there was a, a community college uh, by my house and they had a little film history class. And I just showed up one day when they were showing, uh, I knew they were showing it. They were showing, uh, 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 seven samurai. So the only time I've ever seen seven samurai was in this college class on a 16 millimeter print, but it was great. I loved it. Um, so, uh, I'd seen a couple of films, but then all of a sudden in, uh, uh, little Tokyo in that little mall there, they had a little movie theater and they were having a whole Kurosawa festival. And I think the one for me that did it was Akira. You remember the moment in that film where you were like, yeah, when he has a conversation with the young girl, when he has a conversation with the young girl and she's just so, uh, uh, vivacious and full of life. And I recognize the old guy from the Godzilla movies because, uh, in Soto Honda and, and, uh, uh, Kurosawa used a lot of the same cast. So a lot of the people from the Kurosawa movies you see in like Godzilla and you see in, uh, monster zero and things like that. One of the things I love so much about this book um, is just the insights it gives you into the industry, mm-hmm. clearly from someone who's been in the industry for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And staying on Kurosawa for a minute, there's a way that it's phrased in this book where it he's described as a working man mm-hmm. versus a fine artist. Right, yeah. uh, just somebody who was taking gigs, who was working, didn't really realize what he was putting together. I, I want to know, do you consider yourself a working man or a fine artist? Well, I, I, consider, my, I consider myself a fine artist that is proud of being able to practice the craft and practice it, uh, uh, professionally. And, you know, and there's a difference like, you know, um, a, fe- a fellow or a woman can be an auteur and, and, you know, they can be an artist and they can get their point of view across. And if they have a particular peculiar or particular way of shooting something, they can shoot it, but that doesn't necessarily make them a good filmmaker the way somebody who, 
who gets hired to do B who gets you basically somebody who's on television. Okay, where this uh, this week they do an episode of NCIS, and the next week they do an episode of Criminal Mind, and the next week after that they do an episode of Star Trek, Star Trek Deep Space Nine or whatever. Well, those are those are those are uh, they're journeymen on one hand, but also. They only get work if they're good. They have to actually, you know, they have to plan out their shots and they have to uh, uh, deliver at the end of the week and, and deal with all the people. And um, I actually do think that that is a, um, a lost art. I, I think that type of craftsmanship, because the, the industry is getting so rarefied and, and even people who make movies, well, you know, you're probably only making a movie once every three years or so, even and that's, that's if you're working a lot. Uh, so that type of, you know, where, where some of the directors that we like, some of the older genre directors, oh, and they could do three movies a year. And so I think that kind of craftsmanship is being lost as time goes on. So I, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to think that I'm a fine artist that has a craftsmanship journeyman, uh, uh, uh ability. You know, Sean mentioned the chapter that expands a little bit on the ambiguity involving Cliff and his wife. And, and, and it's not the first ambiguity you've ever put in your films. Yeah, right. You know, you think of the Band-Aid on the back of Marcellus yeah. Wallace, the briefcase from Pulp Fiction, the, the, the diamonds from Reservoir Dogs. If you were to novelize any of the other ambiguities that you've had in your films, which would you have the most fun maybe giving us just a little bit more, but then in, in your own particular style, of course, not going all the way? Yeah, gosh. Well, I wouldn't tell you about the briefcase. All right. Uh, uh. <laughs> Two two double A batteries and a couple. Uh, yeah, of yeah exactly. Yeah, it's uh, with a yellow. The worst novel ever. With a golden gel, right, attached to a light. Right. Um, let me think about that. Um, maybe I guess if I were doing a novelization of uh, um, Reservoir Dogs, it would be interesting to uh, to explain exactly what went down at the jewelry store robbery. Yeah. Well, if I was would doing you? Reservoir Dogs, I would. Yeah. So what went down? Oh, I'm, I'm, I haven't written it yet, all right? Uh, but I actually do, we, me and the actors kind of know what went down because even though we didn't shoot it in the movie, we had a rehearsal day where we just acted out the robbery, all right? And then so we actually saw what fucking happened. <laughs> I hope that's on film somewhere. No, 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 it was, uh, you had to be in the room. <laughs> You know, we're talking about the ambiguity, ambiguities, and I find this really interesting. Obviously, you're not going to answer a lot of those questions in terms of things that he just mentioned in terms of the briefcase. And obviously, I don't want those questions answered. Yeah, I, I didn't I, figure you did. I, I, I just want to like enjoy the speculation of it. But in this book, you do dive a lot deeper into mm -hmm. that scene with Cliff and his wife. And I, I wondered why you felt that was one ambiguity you wanted to dive deeper in and give us more answers about. Because there's a really interesting element there morally as an audience member as we watch mm -hmm. it, where we're going back and forth with, do we like Cliff? Do we not like Cliff? Mm -hmm. Like, is he a good person? Is he a bad person? And the beauty of your writing is that it's mm -hmm. he's human. He's a yeah, human. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I wondered why you felt that that was one you wanted to give more information about. Well... Well, I guess partly because I kind of had my fun by not giving the answer as far as the movie was concerned. And, uh, and it just completely worked out great to, to just dangle it out there. And the idea that it was depending on the, depending on the choice you made about did Cliff just accidentally kill his wife or did he in a moment actually murder his wife? And then, you know, and then, uh, um, following that up with the idea that, okay, he's branded a murderer. Well, maybe he deserves it and he got away with it. Or no, it was just a, a tragic mishandling of diving equipment. And now he's branded a murderer against, you know, and, but nobody really knows what the deal is, but he has to live under this shadow. Um, that just worked out great in the movie. And everyone's response was great. And you would hear people 
uh, uh, both online and just even in person, like you uh, 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 passionately defend that that Cliff. No, obviously he didn't do it. It was this. It was that. And then somebody. No, he fucking did it. He totally fucking did it. And um, yeah, that was me. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. And we even had like situations where it was like uh, uh, like in the lobby of theaters after the movie. Uh, uh, was playing and 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 they would like gather around me and start asking me questions and I would say okay so what do you think did Cliff do it did he not do it and you would literally have half the people would say yes he did it and the other half would say uh, oh no of course not he didn't do it and one time was even really cool because it was two twins <laughs> and one of the twins believed he did it and the other twin no 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 he didn't he couldn't have do it and they were twins you divided a house yeah I divided I divided the house so uh, it was one of those things where I was sort of of like a, um, well, okay. Do I want to ruin all that and and say what say what really happened? Uh, go well, go ahead. I mean, one, you, you, it's a, I'm writing a book, so you, you got to say it in a book. I mean, I'm 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 being a chicken shit if I don't say it if I don't say it in the book. And I had my fun with the movie and everything, so it's like it's a new medium, a new thing. So, uh, yeah, normally I don't like to if if. Normally, if I don't let you know what the deal is, there's a reason. I don't want you to know, and I want you to make it up. But now in the case of a book, well, okay, I'll, I'll tell you. It's just interesting reading it because then you kind of, it's like a ping pong in your mind going back and forth of whether that whole idea of the moral element of it. It's really fascinating. Well, even as it is, I, you know, there's, so there's still just a little bit of give and take depending on your point of view. Well, just <laughs> a, only a little bit, yeah. but just a little Give. To pull the curtain back just a bit, these two argued about whether what they read, oh, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They had different opinions about oh, that. It, was a whole, it doesn't help. He looks like Brad Pitt, and Brad Pitt would never do yeah, that. Right. <laughs> well, that was actually one of my favorite things about it was just the idea that, because um, people already were just kind of so so aboard the cliff train. And um, and look, I'm aboard the cliff train. Right now, I'm aboard the cliff train. I like I like the cliff train. Uh, um, but, I w- it, uh, but it was... But that became part of the fun of the of the book was just uh, gi- giving you more because he's such an uh, such an uh, enigma in the in the movie, giving you more backstory about him and like this little uh, 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 thing in this past. It plays like a little short story unto itself, and then another one. But the whole idea was that each time I tell you something more about him. It's more disturbing than the last time. Yes. <laughs> Especially when you go into the Brandy stuff, which yeah, is pretty yeah. wild yeah. as well. Yeah, the Brandy backstory, is, it's going to blow your mind. It's amazing. Yeah. Quentin, there's a scene in the movie um, that hits differently now from when you uh, released it, and that's the Cinerama Dome lighting up at night yeah, yeah. and coming to life. And, you know, here we are in Los Angeles. We're yeah. in your own theater. Uh, we're all paying very close attention to what happens with that venue. You know, yeah. it's. I think it's very personal to all of us. It's right. one of those theaters that we love to try to come to when we were here. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on, you know, what you hope happens to that? And of course, would you uh, ever buy it? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I had to ask. I had to ask. Yeah. I don't think, uh, I don't, I don't think it's really for sale. All right. I think the idea was to break up the arc light and to maybe sell the other theaters. But uh, uh, me and Tim League have been in in talks with them a little bit and they're not, they don't seem to be in any, um, they're not really trying to uh, actively sell the Cinerama Dome or the, or the Hollywood Arclight. I think they plan on keeping that. I think they just wanted to break up the chain, get, uh, 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 get out from under their debt. But I think they want to, I think they want to sell the other Arclight theaters. All right. So they can uh, keep that one. Okay. Gotcha. You know, one of the interesting things that we learned about all, all the characters in this book and obviously in the film is that they all have very deep, passionate movie opinions, like everyone in this room does. Yeah, yeah. 
But what's interesting is when I think some of their opinions, specifically Rick Dalton's, disagree with yours. Like oh, Rick yeah. Dalton hates spaghetti westerns. So yeah. I'm curious about what is the process of writing someone's opinion that is different than yours? Mm-hmm. And do you have more fun writing for someone who would disagree with you? Well, it's well, it's just kind of a, a he's a product of his time. I mean, the thing is, you know, he's a Western guy. And he talks about it. Well, I mean, sort of he talks about it. Uh, about like you know he grew up um, you know he you know he grew up in the uh, in the uh, late 30s early 40s so you know he grew up going to the Gower Gulch uh, uh, Saturday uh, Saturday matinees at the at the at the movie theaters watching Lash Larue watching uh, Hoot Gibson watching guys like that so like that's his idea of of westerns Randolph Scott movies and Rory Calhoun movies those are his ideas of Westerns. And, uh, but you know, that was similar to, you know, you know, that's similar to James Best or Dub Taylor or Harry Carey Jr. Or a lot of these guys, uh, they were very rarefied in, in their, uh, uh, the Americana attached to the West. So, uh, uh, so they were just out and out xenophobic about the idea of uh, spaghetti westerns. I mean, one, they they thought it was just ridiculous. I mean, they uh, absolutely ridiculous that these Italians would think, would dare to think they could make westerns. I mean, what the fuck is up with that? Uh, 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 and like, and and because you know, culturally, they just didn't get it. They didn't understand it. So it was just you know, so they rejected it out of hand. And you know, and, and and like Rick, you know, maybe they saw one, maybe they saw two, and that's it. That's exactly it. That, that's it. Oh, they're all awful. Oh, they're all terrible. Um, you know, and now, not, not everybody felt that way. I mean, Lee Van Cleef really liked making them. And like John Ireland went down there and made more money than John Ireland ever made in America, just making movies and making movies in Italy. A lot of guys kind of, uh, uh, fell in that way, but, uh, you know, you know, they thought TV was bad enough with their bum rush schedule, but like, Oh Jesus Christ. Well, TV's even better than that shit. <laughs> you, know, it, it, you know, they're just, you know, but it's just, you know, they're just culturally out of step. They can't see that it's a new thing, you know, but they wouldn't have responded to McCabe and Mrs. Miller either. <laughs> That's just not their thing. Uh, switching gears here, I, I was rewatching Jackie Brown the other day, which, you know, as I watch it more and more, it's just, it's such a timeless masterpiece. That opened the shot of her in the, in, the, in the airport is just incredible. But one thing I was interested in knowing when I was watching it was, I believe it's the only feature of yours you shot on 185. Yeah. And I was looking at, like, obviously everything you've done has been, like, generally 239. I think Reservoir Dogs was 235, and obviously Hateful well, Eight was... All the 235s, except for, like, uh, Hateful Eight, which was, like, you know... 276. Yeah, 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 276, yeah. So I wanted to ask you um, about why why. Jackie Brown was 185, the only movie of yours that you shot in that taller ratio. I'm wondering in, in terms of what you wanted to get across and kind of why that was the one you wanted. That's a good question. Uh, um, I didn't want it to be an epic. I was coming after Pulp Fiction, so I wanted to go underneath the success of Pulp Fiction. And to me, 235 suggests epic. And I didn't want it to be an epic. And also, I, I didn't want it to take place in my world. And I knew my world would probably always uh, uh, primarily deal with scope. And so I wanted it to, it's the only movie that I think, you know, it, I, I, I worked hard to make it in Elmer Leonard's world and not my world. And so I thought it would just have a different ratio. And also the black exploitation movies I was jumping off on, very, very few of them were ever shot on scope. Most of them were shot 185. Didn't you say that, that Jackie Brown is a movie that your characters would go see? Oh yeah, I, oh no, they would. Yeah, some of them would definitely go see it. Yeah. Did you also shoot one eight five when you because you shot digitally for uh, Rodriguez's Sin City that section with Del yeah. Toro and, and Clive Owen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh-huh. one eight five as well. Oh, well I'm, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, because exactly. the whole movie was. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. I was just curious. It's one scene. Yeah, but yeah. yes, I, I'm sure that was one eight five. Cool. 
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. There's a moment uh, late in the book, and this isn't a spoiler, but it is something sort of surreal, that when I read it, I had to reread it twice. Um, Quentin Tarantino is in the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's about as, as, as like unusual. 1969, circa 1969, Tarantino, yeah. <laughs> uh, please tell me the thought process of, of putting yourself into the book, and I'm wondering if that version of Quentin Tarantino ever worked with Rick. Um... Well, uh, well, okay, I'll, I'll hold the second one for later. Uh, um, <laughs> second part of your question. Um, so, uh, well, where that that happened was, uh, well, I'm not just in it, but my stepfather, uh, Kurt Zastapil, oh. is in it. He's the piano bar musician at the. Oh, that's cool. Uh, what, what, what they're talking about is there's a uh, uh, there's a chapter um, where in the book. When Rick gets uh, through with this Lancer episode for the day, uh, Jim Stacy asks if he want to go out and, and have a drink. And so they go to this bar by, uh, where Jim Stacy lives in San Gabriel called the Drinker's Hall of Fame. Um, and it's just like, you know, all these famous Hollywood drunks. Uh, posters are all over the wall. And, uh, and well, uh, my stepfather at that time, Kurt Zastapil, was a piano bar musician in and around East LA and the, the San Gabriel area. Um, I remember like some of the, it worked at some really cool sounding bars. I mean, there was a drinker's hall of fame. There was my old Kentucky home. I'm really cool places. We had the matchbooks for everything. Um, but anyway, uh, that was a real bar that, that he worked at. And, um, before I started school, uh, since he worked at night and my mom was a nurse working during the day, he took care of me during the day. So I was with him all day long before I started uh, uh, preschool or kindergarten. And he took me everywhere. You know, he was like, you know, he went to go visit some friends. He'd take me along with him. You know, uh, 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 he went to, uh, uh, you know, go have lunch with some buddies at a, at a diner. He took me along with him. You know, he did any, you know, uh, he just always took me. And so, um, you know, so I've been to the Drinkers Hall of Fame a few different times. I mean, a couple of times, not never at night, but I mean, a couple of times I did was, t my mom did take me to one of his bars at night to like watch him play, watch him sing. And one time he brought me on stage. It was behind his piano 
And he goes, hey, my son's in the room. He's uh, uh, three years old. Uh, come on up here, Quentin, you know? And, and he put me on his lap and he like played some song. And then the story goes that when they tried to take me away, I started crying. <laughs> It's like, like, I like being by the microphone. I like being in the, in the light. And uh, I started starting to have a tinder tantrum when they oh, tried to, things have changed. Yeah. When they tried to pull me off the stage. But I remember the drinkers hall of fame really well, because he would stop by every once in a while during the day to pick up his check. So I'd see it when it was like really kind of uh, cash, you know, for like, a, like, you know, uh, one in the afternoon and it was just all regulars. Hey, Kurt, how you doing? And whatever. But like, I looked, looked at every poster and I mean, there's some people I didn't know who they were until I saw them in the drinkers hall of fame. Like, who's that? Oh, that's Martha Ray. All right. <laughs> and I go, Oh, was she a drunk? Well, yeah, she had a drinking problem. <laughs> <laughs> that is the greatest name for a bar, by the yeah. way. That is a phenomenal name. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, so in the, uh, in the piece, it was easy to um, uh, dr uh, remember the place. And I thought that it was a cool place to set a scene. I put Kurt in the story. Even the actor Warren Vanders, who's a real actor. Well, he was a friend of, he was a friend of my dad's and, and he came down. And actually, the first dog I ever got was a puppy given to me by Warren Vanders. All right. Um, and, uh, uh, and so it just came up that uh, as I was writing it, uh, I'm, I'm referred to by my, my stepfather, all right, as I'm a fan of Rick Dalton. Uh, because we both were fans. Of, we, the thing is in the, in the book is we, uh, I'm a fan of uh, uh, 14 Fist of McCluskey. And, uh, what a picture. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently there's a, uh, and, and so uh, he mentions, oh, yeah, well, you know, uh, there was a rerun of uh, Bounty Law on TV the other day. And I pointed, uh, like it was the thing kind of thing that my stepdad would do. But I'm like, hey, Quentin, you know, uh, hey, Quint, you know, that, um, call me Quint. Hey, Quint, you know, uh, see that guy right there, that cowboy on, on Bounty Law? Yeah. Well, that's the guy with the eye patch and the flamethrower from 14 Fist of McCluskey. Really? That's him? Yeah, that's him. So that was before he lost his eye? But there was a couple of times. I remember uh, um, my dad coming home, uh, uh, during the night and he like, uh, some cool actor that I knew of came into the bar and he got an autograph for me. So, you know, so in real life, the Rick Dalton autograph would be a Leonard Nimoy <laughs> autograph, <Wow. laughs> but it was like on a drinker's hall of fame, uh, a cocktail napkin. <laughs> That's wow. awesome. Uh, so Quentin, you can't go on Bill Maher and drop uh, a bomb like I was thinking of remaking Reservoir Dogs and not expect <laughs> us to bring it up. <laughs> I'm genuinely curious. You said you're not going to do it. But if it was enough to bring it up, that snowball must have been rolling down the mountain a little bit. I'm curious as to how far into the process did you actually get with this idea and what the fuck were you going to do? Like, how was that going to work? Well, I didn't get that far in it, but it was one of the, I, I've decided if I wanted to do something like that, I would do it more on stage. And I think that would be cool. Oh, that'd be a great stage play. Yeah. And, and, but, uh, you know, but I, but my pro thought process was, well, if it's a strong piece of material, it, it, it would work doing it anytime. It does seem timeless. Um, and then just uh, 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 with a new group of actors, it would have a, a new life and it would have a new life by the fact that I didn't really know what the hell I was doing when I did Reservoir Dogs. And now I, I know what I'm doing a little bit more. It'd be interesting to, I mean, I won't have the useful exuberance that I had with it, but we'll see. <laughs> how much, how much of that accounts for anything. I think I was thinking at the time when I was considering doing it as a movie, making it an all black cast. That's what I think that would have been my, 
my twist on it as far as uh, 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 you know, making it a different movie. Were there any actors in, in particular that you were thinking, oh, it'd be really cool to see this person as Mr. Pink or Mr. No, Brown I don't think I took White. it that. I don't think I took it that far. Yeah. I think part of the idea that would have been open up would be just see who responded to it and to you know figure it out that way. But it's absolutely not happening. No, I'm not going to do it. I'll, I'll probably do it on stage at some point, oh, that's but not. Awesome. Not as you know anyone we know they can get tickets? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Quentin, uh, I'll, hook you up. I'll hook you up. Last time we talked, with, uh, we had a two and a half hour conversation. We were in New York. We were talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And after the conversation was over, we were just talking about other people's movies and just like mm -hmm. geeking out about the top 10 films of the decade and social network and mm -hmm. films like that. And I went back and found an interview you did where you were talking about how much you loved Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. And that's one of my favorite movies of all time. And I, the, what you said about it was exactly how I felt about it. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, I think even last week, uh, New Beverly showed a 35 millimeter film print of Tenet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I have not heard your thoughts on Tenet. And I was just curious what you thought of the film because I, 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 you had such a passionate discussion about Dunkirk. Um, I, Tenet was an incredible experience. I'm just curious where you were on that movie. I, I think I need to see it again. <laughs> With subtitles? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think I need to see it again. <laughs> but, okay, but even, okay, the, the, that sounds like a, uh, uh, a cop-out chicken shit answer. All right. Uh, and it is. All right. Uh, but to be fair, I don't think I really saw Dunkirk until I saw it the third time. I mean, the first time I saw it, I don't know what, I didn't know what to make of it. I enjoyed it, but it was almost such a, it was such a big experience that I don't even think I, I kind of thought of it as a movie. It was, uh, uh, um, I mean, it wasn't until I even saw it the third time that I even realized they were going back in time all the time. I mean, it was just kind of such an overloading, uh, um, bombastic experience that it took me at least two full times before I could into the third time before I could actually see the movie that I was watching because I was just so dealing with the sensation of it all. Mm. Cool. Um, this is a question that I asked these guys whether they thought it was going to happen and it kind of shocked them. So I have to ask it, <laughs> ask it to you. Uh, you infamously number your films. Yeah. Uh, and to the point where one of the times I had to ask you is, is Kill Bill one movie or two? Of course we had that conversation. Yeah. One movie. It's one movie. For your next film, will the title card actually say the last film by Quentin Tarantino? Uh, the, the, that's, why, that's my plan. <laughs> that's my plan is to, to, like, the last film by Quentin Tarantino, at least in the opening credit, uh, at least in the trailer, but I, I think probably in the, the movie, yeah. Oh, so you've thought about that. Yeah, no, I've thought about it. No, yeah. I never miss an opportunity to mythologize myself. <laughs> <laughs> So we are two years out of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. uh, around the time frame that you normally do sort of announce uh, what your next film is going to be about. I'm not going to ask you what it is, but do you know what your next film is about? No, I don't have a clue. Okay. With that being said, mm -hmm. how much will the idea of this is my last movie dictate what kind of movie it's going to be? Well, it'll stop it from being something frivolous, you know. Uh, uh, it'll stop stop me from like, hey, that's a good book. Why not do that? All right, you know. Does, does R-rated <laughs> Star Trek fall under that umbrella? Yeah, Star Trek falls under that umbrella, you know. Uh, 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 you know, so like, uh, uh, there's a lot, you know, but, but okay, but that, you know, now would be the time in the career where I would do that good book just because it would make a good movie. If I were like, 
to be, you know, I guess somebody, you know, uh, a normal trajectory. Well, okay, no, I, I got three more movies. I have four more movies or whatever the time is. I don't even know I have one more movie. That's the way life is. All right, we've just learned that this year. Um, but uh, uh, so that that nips all those ideas in the bud. Um, so uh, it, 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 it'll, you know, 99% be an original. And um, uh, I, I could change my mind on this. I could absolutely change my mind on this. But um, I don't see me like trying to out epic once upon a time in Hollywood. I kind of like the idea. I could change my mind, but I kind of like the idea of that being like the last big epic and the last one kind of being more of a autumnal epilogue kind of, uh, you know, the, the epilogue at the end of a big book. Like, would it be like intimate, like Reservoir Dogs? Well, yeah, uh, um, I don't even, um, well, epilogue doesn't necessarily, can mean intimate, but doesn't necessarily mean to mean to be intimate. It's just, it's not, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to outdo everything else. It's not trying to be a big epic. Unless I did Kill Bill 3, then, uh, then it would have to be... <laughs> That would be my Lola Montez. It had to be the best movie or it's the whole career is a failure. Is that a possibility? <laughs> it's a possibility. All right. Yeah. Since I don't know, it's a possibility. Was, it, was it, it Zendaya that said that she wanted to play the daughter? Yeah. The, uh, um, Vivica A. Fox. Uh, Vivica's yeah. daughter, yeah. Yeah. I would love to see that story. Yes. <laughs> that would be amazing. And you've got Maya out there ready to go as BB. It could be really terrific. But then, you, then that's going to bring up the whole argument. Where now we're going to have to have the conversation about is Kill Bill three movies? Is it, it two Kill movies? Is it one movie? Well, that's the Probably. idea. Just keep throwing bait out there. All right, and uh, see who bites. Right. <laughs> Quentin, my my experience with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was interesting because I, I loved the film when I first saw it, but I fell in love with it on my third viewing when I saw it in 70 millimeter at the Arclight. Like it was like the most astounding experience. And now it's really my favorite movie of yours. Oh, I've, I, I've seen it over 20 times. It's the one I put on the most. I put it on just to listen to the soundtrack mm -hmm. a lot. Um, one of my favorite elements of that film is that moment when Rick is kind of giving pushback to the director mm -hmm. about his costume that he has to wear in yeah. Lancer. Mm -hmm. And I, it's, and, and in the book, you dive into that a lot more. It's yeah. a really, really great scene. I was wondering over in through the course of your career, what actors have given you pushback in terms of costumes that you've had those conversations with. And then they realize later on, Oh, this was a really good idea. Well, the one that I'm the most, in, uh, uh, delightful to, uh, recount Uma hated the yellow tracksuit. <laughs> no. What? Fucking hated it. Didn't get it. Thought she looked like a popsicle, all right, uh, a banana popsicle. Uh, she was just not into it. Had no idea who the fuck Bruce Lee was, practically. All right, uh, 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 I finally like had to show her Game of Death. She sort of kind of got it, but like you know, uh, now since then it's become this totally iconic thing. But and she she probably doesn't even remember it. But she's like, you're trying to make me look like a fucking clown. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a conversation with her kind of like the director has with Rick where you were like, listen, this is the idea. Because obviously with Rick, he's like, well, people aren't going to see me, right? And I wasn't as nice as uh, Sam Wanamaker was. Like, you're going to wear the fucking tracksuit, all right? <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. And that's what time it is. <laughs> well, it was obviously the right move. That's funny. Um, <laughs> Quinn, this is a topic that's kind of near and dear to my heart, and I would love to get your take on it, because it was a pretty big um, conversation that we had on the Ribbon podcast often, is that you know, quite often you have, you have total control over your films and, and the cut that's going to get released. Um, 
But there was a filmmaker, Zack Snyder, who had a, a, a movie called Justice League. And it took his fans three years to fight to get his version of it right. restored. Um, what were you thinking when you heard that whole thing going on about a, a studio keeping that that cut or, um, you know, preventing them from seeing it? And then the boon of streaming, you know, allowing something like that to even come out. I just wanted to hear your thoughts about that as it was going on. Well, I haven't I haven't seen it because I don't have HBO Max, but. That's something I'd like I'll to see. I'll give you my login. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something I would like to see. I never saw the other. I never saw when it was at the theaters, but I'd be kind of curious to see if, like, uh, his four-hour, you know, uh, uh, his original uh, uh, vision on that. Um, no, I actually thought that was really groovy, and I actually thought the fans were really groovy. That the fact that they kept they kept persisting on it and 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 everything. I think didn't he do something like that with also Watchmen as well? Yeah, there was yeah. a director's cut of Watchmen, yeah. but it wasn't like as fan driven as yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This was yeah, no, this was like the fans demanded it yeah. kind of thing. No, I think that no, I think that's I think that's really groovy. I mean, I've made it a practice that my director's cut plays in three thousand cinemas on opening <laughs> way. <laughs> Would you be willing to release the longer version of? Because I remember Margaret Robbie did an interview recently where she talked about there was like a four or five hour cut of this. Yeah, like she was exaggerating. I know, but that uh, could yeah. be like a. <laughs> Would you consider in this room would watch a four or five hour yeah, cut? Yeah. Would of that you do movie? like a Netflix chapter thing, like you did? No, with no, no, I did that for Hateful Eight, but I, I wouldn't. I don't think this would necessarily work better as a chapter kind of thing. Um, you know, um, you know, the film has kind of passed on. It's become it's you know, it's become pretty popular, and people seem to really like it and everything. So I, I, uh, I'm sure Tom Rothman would be totally down with the idea at at some point, especially with the book coming out and everything uh, out there. Was now people read the book. Um, I can see I can see sometime in the next couple of years or something um, more or less just cutting together a cut of the movie if I didn't care about time if like time not not saying I'm going to use everything I shot because everything I shot wasn't probably doesn't need to be in the movie but if but if I was just cutting together like my uh, uh, what I would think would be the ultimate version of the movie and I didn't have to worry about time whatsoever I can see us like uh, um, cutting together a, a, a cut of the movie that way and just releasing it in a, a theatrically in a boutique kind of situation. You That's know? awesome. It awesome. would probably be, that, something like that would probably be like you know, three hours and 20 minutes or something like that. Oh, yeah. wow. I'm there. There's a, a great moment, uh, an expansion in the book where Sharon Tate is going to go to the box office and kind of talk her way into seeing Wrecking Crew. Yeah. And the girl in the box office says, oh, you're much prettier in person. Yeah. And the narrator kicks in and says, listen, if you ever meet an actor, <laughs> do not tell them that they look better in person. Yeah. <laughs> Which, as a guy on local news, it's also a thing not to say. Yeah. Because right. we're very insecure people. What is the thing, if someone meets a director in the street, what is the thing not to say to you? Uh, Can I take a picture? Well, okay, well, that, yeah, yeah. That's not, that's not primarily to a director. All right. Um, um, don't tell me the movie I did you didn't like because I didn't ask you. <laughs> <laughs> How if often? I ask you, you can tell me. If I didn't ask you, who fucking asked you? <laughs> How often does that happen? Not that often, but every once in a while, somebody wants to be a smartass or thinks they're, they're cutting edge or punk rock by, you know, <laughs> shitting on something you've done. Uh in the book, uh, you actually reference uh, this when we're, we're, in, we're in Polanski's house and, and he, there's a poster on the wall of the film that Polanski and Sharon Tate made. Uh, obviously, Rick uh, has posters in his house. I was curious, do you actually have any posters of your works uh, in your house? Like, is there a Pulp Fiction or a Reservoir Dogs poster? Like, because I love I the comments. I got too many cool posters to put up, the posters from my movies. All right. uh, uh, I, di I did, um, I, I do have, uh, um, but that's, that's a lie though. I, I actually, um, uh, 
for a long, long time, I I don't think it's there anymore. No, it's not there. It's not there now. Um, but for a long time, I had a really cool Japanese poster uh, for Pulp Fiction over my fireplace, which was an interesting design, and it had the uh, uh, the palm door palm door gold leaf from Khan, and it was signed by Shintaro Katsu, who played Zatoichi, and his uh, uh, Japanese calligraphy looks like Zatoichi. All right, it looks like a little monk guy, you know, with the with the robe and the little staff. And it was fucking amazing. All right. So to have like this original Japanese, really groovy Japanese poster and then have like it signed by Zatoichi was pretty terrific. Mm. By the way, if you guys haven't, if you walk right past the poster that's in the lobby, there's a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood poster yeah. that has zombies on it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those Guyana, you know. <laughs> oh, no, okay. I take that back, actually. I have so, uh, I okay, it's not, it's not officially mine, but I have the kind of like those hand-painted Guyana posters for Inglorious Bastards, but it's not mine. It's the Bo Svensson and Glorious Bastards, oh. but it's pretty cool. Oh, that's very cool. <laughs> that's cool. Um, what, what other posters do you have in your house? Out of curiosity, do you don't mind me asking? Yeah, uh, um, uh, I have a big Italian poster of uh, Sergio Corbucci's uh, Hellbenders called Il Crule, all right, in, in Italy. Uh, in my living room, I have uh, the living room is where I have all my Western posters. So I have a big, uh, uh, um, a big Italian one for. Uh, Sam Peckinpah's Junior Bonner. I have Lee Van Cleef's um, uh, The Big Gun Down. Um, and I'm, I'm a big fan of William Whitney. So I have, uh, I have a, a plaster, plastered on the wall. I have his very first movie, a movie called The Painted Stallion. I have the poster for that. Um, I have a poster for his movie, Texas, uh, Arizona Raiders with uh, um, uh, Audie Murphy. Uh, and then also I have a bunch of, um, bunch of really cool uh, uh, Spanish posters, uh, some of them drawn by the uh, um, uh, Spanish illustrator uh, Jano, who's like the king of the uh, Spanish posters. And they're really neat. And I have them like literally uh, uh, glued to the wall as if they're fly posted, you know, as if it's like they're, they're like fly posted in an alley. And then I have uh, uh, this one corridor down, going down my house, all right, uh, that I call my Polish corridor. And that's where all my Polish posters are like, you know, plastered to the wall. <laughs> Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Um, we are in a weird spot in the industry where uh, a lot of filmmakers who are your colleagues are dealing with something called the day and date. Mm -hmm. uh, their movies are opening in theaters and they're also available on streaming. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm glad you're getting out before this becomes an issue. But what are your thoughts on, on this as an option? I think it's I think it's depressing. You know, um, uh, one, I think it's depressing. Two, I'm glad that I'm working with Sony that doesn't deal with that. Right. You know, they haven't gone down that route. Um but also, um, it just really makes me think about 2019 when we came out with Once Upon a Time in, um, in Hollywood. It really makes me think that, wow, myself and Joker and 1917, it was like we were birds that just like threw, flew through a, a windowsill just as the window was slamming shut. And right. we practically got our tail feathers, you know, uh, 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 caught in the slam, but we, we, we got out in time. And uh, I mean, just, you know, just to put it, you know, to put it bluntly, it's like, okay, so one, you know, a movie like Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood made something like $346 million or something like that. Okay. Well, the idea that a movie like that could come out around the world and make that much money only by asses and seats. 
No streaming revenue was attached to that. No DVDs, no, and uh, any other uh, accelerary markets were uh, attached to that number. That is literally people leaving their house, going to a theater, buying a ticket and putting their ass in a seat and watching the movie. I don't know when that's going to happen again. Uh, I, I, I think it might, but I don't know when, uh, I know a movie now couldn't do that. Couldn't do that this year. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Like, do you think it's, it's now that that box has been, or Pandora's box has been opened where the studios can get those revenues from different places. Is it almost impossible to, to put the genie back in the bottle? I'm using every metaphor. I have. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, but when you have, uh, uh, if you have, I don't know if Paramount's doing it, but I know Warner Brothers is doing it. But like, if, if you know, if if you've got these studios just embracing that, well, then that's what time it is. <laughs> that is the industry you're looking at now. You know, everyone in this room has an opinion about pop culture. That's why we're all here. And a lot of us like a lot of the same stuff that is kind of heralded by a lot of people. Obviously, a lot of us love your films, but every person in this room loves something that their friends kind of give them shit for. Like, mm-hmm. how do you like that? My thing is I really like big bang theory. Like yeah, yeah, all yeah. my friends, <laughs> make, all my friends make fun of me for it. At one point they do a, they do the dance from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> I think it's great. My grandma watches it. It's a whole deal. Uh, so I'm curious, what is the thing within pop culture that you love that your friends give you shit for? Oh gosh. Uh, I have a few things. Now, normally my whole thing is that, um, that if I like it, then I'm not embarrassed by it. I sure. can defend it against all comers. But, uh, but uh, um, is it Big Bang Theory? Well, I do like Big Bang Theory. <laughs> all right, uh, but I usually watch that on an airplane. All right, I'll, I will. I Where literally will spend like two and a half hours just watching every episode of the Big Bang Theory, and then I figure out what else I'm going to watch. Uh, uh, um, but uh, um, uh, see. Everything I'm going to say sounds too legit. Okay. Uh, um, okay. I. Okay. I'm again. I'm not ashamed of this. I, I'm. Not, I'm not ashamed of this. Okay. What are you going to say? Okay. Uh, Elvis Mitchell also likes this guy too. But actually, but particularly, there's one critic from College de Cinema, and we've really bonded. I'm a big fan of that romantic comedy guy, Mark Lawrence, the guy who does all the Hugh Grant movies. Oh, yeah. uh, you know. Uh, um, and I think he's a terrific writer and he writes great for Hugh Grant and Hugh Grant's terrific in it. And I like to see who the, who, who the girl's going to be in this time. You know, I really like that one rewrite that, that was the last one he did with Marissa Tomei. Uh, but I think that guy's fantastic. Uh, in fact, I remember, um, and I think music and lyrics is his masterpiece. And, uh, uh, I remember actually, I was like watching music. I, uh, I didn't see it at the theaters. I saw it on an airplane and then it landed like, the 20 minutes before it was, the movie was over. And so then I immediately went to Amoeba and bought the music and lyrics DVDs so I could see how it ended. That's awesome. <laughs> but really I think quick. that guy's great. We went to Amoeba today to try to buy your book and it was sold out. Oh, so, yeah. Well done. We love Amoeba. Oh, I haven't asked, you had a second part to your question that I never asked. Okay. Did Quentin work with Rick? Did Quentin work with, well, Quentin did work with Trudy. We know that. All right. We know that. Okay. Quentin worked with Trudy. Um, Oscar nominated. Oscar, uh, an Oscar, yeah, her final Oscar nomination. (laughs) All right. Her first one, only one for lead actress. That's right. Um, (laughs) Naturally. All right. Uh, uh, Quentin never worked with Rick, but, 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 but I did meet Rick. 
All right. I, uh, 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 Rick retired uh, around 1988 or so, and he moved to Hawaii with Francesca. The, the marriage lasted, by the way. All right. Uh, contrary to what Cliff thought. Uh, contrary to Cliff. That yeah, just yeah. shows you what Cliff knows. All right. Uh, <laughs> it was a romantic in the office. Yeah. So like uh, they retired and they moved to uh, Honolulu or the Big Island or something like that. They moved to Hawaii. And, uh, and then I went to Hawaii in like 1996 for the Hawaii International Film Festival. And while I was there, you know, they said, well, is there anybody on the island you want to meet? Don Ho, this one, that one, Rick Dalton. They go, whoa, Rick Dalton. <laughs> Rick Dalton lives in Hawaii? Yeah, yeah, he lives in Hawaii. You know, so, uh, so then I met him and we had lunch and it was a great time. And uh, I told him I had some different like uh, film prints of some of his TV shows and some of his movies. So then the next year I came back and, and curated a little Rick Dalton festival at the uh, uh, Hawaii International Film Festival. I love that you have all these yes. details. That's incredible. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, it's not just me yanking it out of my butt right now. Uh, uh, I don't know if I'm going to publish it. I might publish it, but uh, I actually wrote a book called The Films of Rick Dalton. Oh. <laughs> you know how they oh have those books? Goodness. Like, you know, like the films of the films of uh, Charles Bronson, the films of Anthony oh. Quinn. Okay, well, I did a whole thing because I wanted to know everything Rick did. I wanted to know every. TV show he ever guested on. I wanted to know every movie he ever did. And so I just ended up writing a, 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 the films of Rick Dalton. And uh, just so I would know. And I have it. And like, and HarperCollins wants to publish it. But I go, okay, well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, might be writing this once upon a time in the Hollywood train to the to death. All right. So uh, let's see after the cinema book, if there's still an, an audience for it, but uh, I did figure everything out. It reminds me a little bit of a story that I heard from Nicholas Hammond, who um, talks about the yeah. fact that you adored his Spider-Man. Oh yeah. I thought he was great as Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> and he said you were like in England one time and you found original canisters of the the pilots or the the oh no episodes. we found out yeah because they, they got released theatrically in in England and so we found somebody who actually had uh, uh, we showed it here at the New Beverly yeah uh, we found somebody who had uh, a thirty five millimeter print of of uh, the theatrical of, or either I don't think it was a pilot I think it was like just a, a two part episode right. that they released as a feature. And so we screened it and like, we totally didn't have the rights for it or anything. And so we showed it with like Spider-Man 2, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man 2. We didn't have rights, we didn't have shit. And so like, we were kind of like sweating bullets a little bit. And then Stan Lee was still alive. And then Stan Lee kind of posted a, a, a picture of the marquee and like, yes, Spider-Man, both versions are playing at the new Beverly. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Celsior. And I go, hey. I'm considering that being indemnified. <laughs> Quinn, this is a, a, a random transition, but uh, one of my favorite things in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a three or four second shot when you light Taco Bell up. Um, and I think, I, I really, my wife and I's first date was Taco Bell, and we are still married today, uh, and we had Taco Bell delivered to our wedding, so it was, it was a big deal for me personally, but I don't think people realize, well, I think they do, how much work goes into that one little shot. Uh, in the terms of production. And I wondered if you could speak on rebuilding a 1969 Taco Bell, how much work went into that. And the idea of like, any filmmaker could do that with CGI, yeah, but you were like, I want to do this in camera. Even going back to the drive-in shot, John Dykstra, you did the miniature yeah, yeah. cars versus having like CGI there. Yeah. But can you talk about just a simple shot like the Taco Bell one and how much work went into that? He's not joking. He loves Taco Bell. I do. Yeah, yeah. I also want to know your Taco Bell order if you... Well, yeah. Well, well, it was, well it's interesting because, I mean, they're, they're, they're getting less and less and less and less and less as time goes on. But... Um, 
Uh, that was one of the things that you could see in Los Angeles, like as the 70s turned in the 80s and the 80s turned in the 90s. It's like, oh, that's like one of the old Taco Bells. And now it's like, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, Marvin's Mexican food or something like that. Or, you know, Marvin's burritos or something. Or like uh, uh, I remember in uh, the South Bay right by Old Town where it used to be discount auto parts. And you could tell that that used to be an old Roy Rogers uh, family restaurant and it had the big spur outside and everything. And um but especially the places that had, uh, uh, you know, particular, uh, you know, uh, architecture like Taco Bell or Wiener Schnitzel or places like that. You can see, oh, okay, so they uh, 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 they sold the building and then the guy, you know, doesn't want to have a Wiener Schnitzel, but he turns it into something else. And so I had the location manager go out and look. I go, look, I know there's a couple places around here like that, so why don't you find them? Well, he found the last of the official Taco Bells that were still done in that 1969 mission, complete mission yeah. side with a bell in the middle. And it was, it was something else. All right. By that point, but they, you know, they didn't tear it down. So it still had the whole mission thing. So they, they rented it to us and we restored it back to its Taco Bell style. And uh, same thing with the Doreener schnitzel. It was something else. All right. Uh, and, and they had a yellow roof. So we painted the roof red, you know, the way like a Derwiner schnitzel in blue. And, and uh, uh, we add, added all the stuff back and goes, yeah, you know, we still had all that stuff like for the last six years in storage. And we just threw it away because we know we're never going to use it. All right. So, uh, you know, but, but they all, in both cases, they all had all the exact architecture, all the right things were there. They were just like, you know, different pieces of plastic saying something different. All that work for a three yeah, well, second shot. Like, well, it's like, well, like my feeling, uh, somebody asked me the other day, you know, would I do something that would be, that would rely a lot on um, uh, CGI. And well, look, yeah, like I, you know, I can imagine doing a movie that takes place on a spaceship maybe. I mean, I don't really imagine myself doing that, but I, I, it's not inconceivable if I had the right story. Like, you know, I can imagine myself doing Alien conceivably. All right. Um, Confirmed. Quentin Tarantino does Alien. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is one of those things where um, if it's not there on the day and I'm actually shooting it with my camera, it just doesn't count. Yep. You know, it's, it's cheating. It doesn't count. It just, it just doesn't fucking count. You know, uh, um, uh, my first AD who's in the audience there, you know, uh, um, Bill Clark, Bill Clark, sign up, say hello to everybody. Say hello to the finest people. <laughs> He has a great saying when they talk about like, okay, is there a second camera? Is there going to be second unit? Well, well, there's never second unit. And if there's a second camera, I'm operating the second camera, you know? Um, and Bill has a response and, and it, it, it fits into the, uh, uh, the CGI thing. Any shot, any shot in my movie that's not framed by me, is, uh, what's your exact term? Uh, 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 it, it, oh, uh, any shot in my movie that's not framed by me is inadequate by its very definition. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is, if you go see one of my movies, every single shot, whether it's a big deal shot or a 360 or a insert of a spoon, I framed it. <laughs> I framed it and Bob lit it, but I, I, I framed it and that's my framing. And, you know, and Bob wants to shoot my framing. If Bob was framing it, he would frame it different, but he's not there to do his thing. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm here to do Quentin's framing. I, it, this, I, I want Quentin stuff. And if, and if, and if, 
if it, if it gets less severe, he's like, what the fuck is this shit? All right, this could be anybody doing it. What's like, I, I, I want the straight on shit. What's going on? This is not a quitting movie. <laughs> exactly. Thank so you for answering that. Um, I want to go back to the book. Yeah, so I mean, so just a, a little further, one other thing. Yeah, so like, you know, if I were doing a monster movie, I want a guy in a suit. Yeah. I want a puppet, or I want a guy in a suit, or I want some animatronic thing. I don't want you know add add the octopus later. No, the octopus has got to be on the fucking set. There can be nine guys making his arms move, but it's like you know it's yeah. a thing. How are you getting a shot of Cliff driving through uh, the roads at, far away from it? We see Brad Pitt's face weaving out of traffic. Are you doing that practically? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was That's Brad driving. Unbelievable. Wow. Yeah, wow. The insurance people at Sony must have loved you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't doing anything too terribly dangerous. He's going pretty quick, though, going through yeah. that traffic. No, he was, he was, well, he's a good driver, man. He's a, he's a speedy little fucker. For people who didn't listen to our, our um, most recent conversation with Quentin, there's a line that we quote often, and it's, it's when the camera goes up over the drive-in screen and, and there's the cars that you see uh, as Cliff is driving home. And John Dykstra, the great John Dykstra, um, suggested digital cars, and Quentin said, no, I want them to be models, essentially. And as John pushed, Quentin said... John, you'll know that they're digital, and and I'll know that they're digital, <laughs> and that's enough. And I thought that was yeah, great. yeah. It was like, well, 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 that's kind of a waste. Like, oh, John, you you you're gonna know the difference, and I'll know the difference. Yeah. And then, okay, so he he he, okay, he goes, okay, of course, I, I I see that. And then all of a sudden, like he had one like moving and and you know backing out and getting into space, like. Oh, What's that? And he goes, well, if we're going to fucking put, like, you know, matchbox cars down there, one of them's got to move, or what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> I mean, if we're going to do it. Let's fucking do it. <laughs> um, I want to come back to the book, because there's a character who you spend a lot more time with, and that's Charles Manson. Um, talked about getting into the headset of Manson, essentially, to write the longer pieces that you did for the book. Um, and one in particular is the scene of Manson coming up to the house on Cielo Drive. Yeah, huh. That's very brief in the movie, but has a lot of motivation in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't understand how you cut that out of the movie. Like, that seems to be a very important character development. It must be really hard for you to not include the movie. Yeah, it was... Yeah, it, it was tough to lose it, especially the little Ooga Booga dance, you know, <laughs> that he does. Because that, that, Brad's still like, what the fuck is that going? All right. Uh, um, and uh, especially because it seems to... to cap off that sequence. And that seems like the kind of sequence you'd want to cap off. But, you know, part of the thing about, you know, if you've got a long movie that's like you're dealing with two hours and 40 minutes and everything, it's like you're constantly, you're constantly dealing with pace, especially if you're dealing with, I mean, it's one thing if you're just following Vin Diesel doing this and doing that and doing this and doing that and doing this. But if you've got like, okay, you have this guy over here and then that guy over here and then, and then this woman over here and maybe a couple of other people. And so you're just kind of hopping from one story to another and then to, to back to this story and then back to this one and back to that one. It's a balancing act. So you don't wear out the audience's welcome. And so, you know, so they're they're with you. They're 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 where they want to be at any given time. So the um and how I know that I don't. You know, it's it's just a you know it's you're the filmmaker. You're the author. So you have a, a unconnected zeitgeist to where the audience is coming from, and you just kind of know it. You can't explain it, but you know it. So yeah. I could have put that, I could have had that ooga booga dance at the end of the Manson scene and nobody would say, well, what's up there? No, it, it would make sense and they would like it. 
But the next scene coming after that is the Rick and Trudy scene. And I was afraid that I needed to get out of the Rick scene, uh, the Cliff scene when I did. I needed to start the Trudy scene. And the idea is, so, you know, so you don't all of a sudden, okay, now that scene is seeming too long. Maybe not at the beginning, but maybe in the middle. And so that's what you're kind of, that's what you're always kind of dealing with. It's not about losing something that, you know, people would be fine with that, but it's going to affect something three scenes later. And now they're all of a sudden feeling the thing is long in the tooth. You just have to kind of, you know, especially if you're hopping from one story to, uh, toward, toward the other. When I go back to uh, 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 Rick, you've got to want to be there. And then when I, and hopefully I'm pulling you out just, and also there is a thing about pulling you out just a little bit before you want to go. There is a, a term that you use in the book that I only know what it means because of you. Mm-hmm. And that term is Pulp Fiction. Uh-huh, yeah. And in fact, when I read those two words together in the book, I was like, oh, that's fucking cool. <laughs> and I just want to talk about the idea that, I mean, I know for you, you've said, I didn't, I didn't go to film school. I like, I, I watched film. Like you mm-hmm. worked in the video store, like you were educated. For many of us in this room, we've been educated mm-hmm. on the classics and on different film terminology by growing up on your films. Mm-hmm. And I just want to talk about sort of what that means to you to not have just entertained us, but you've also in a, in a and I hope you don't take this in a weird way, like you've been a teacher for a lot of us. I mean, like I didn't know what Pulp Fiction meant until you. Right, yeah. Until a soft moist mass yeah. of matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the new heritage edition. Okay, not Webster's, all right. That just happened to be like the dictionary that was at the yeah, house. There's at only the time. one Bible quote that I know by heart. Yeah, that's right. because of you too. <laughs> Which I rewrote liberally. All right. Um, oh, I get it wrong whenever I try to quote it out loud. Yeah. Um no, it's 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 incredibly gratifying. And I've had a lot of people come up to me and, um, and I've overheard people talk about it. I've had a lot of people come up to me and say, you know, things like, well, yeah, it's because of you that I started watching Shaw Brothers movies, or it's because of you I started watching uh, the Hong Kong movies or, or, uh, oh, wow. Okay. Well, he likes it. He likes Miss 45. Well, I'll give that a shot. Wow. That's fantastic. Let me watch King of New York, you know? Um, so I've had a lot of people uh, and, and, you know, and I, I think they're especially especially back in the nineties, because, you know, um, you know, I did a lot of talking about that cause I kind of saw myself as an, um, uh, an ambassador for, uh, um, B movies and exploitation movies or like genre or, or visceral movies, as opposed to talking about house of seven gables or, uh, 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 uh citizen Kane or, uh, you know, how green was my Valley or anything like that. Um, I, I wanted to push that kind of stuff. And, uh, and I, and I think there was an aspect, there was a whole lot of young people who, who saw those first couple of movies and well, they didn't have any reference for it. It was, it was new to them. So then I would talk and then I would say, well, hey, if you like this, then look at this. And if you like that, look at that. And, then, and so they, they wanted to see more stuff like that. So they went down those rabbit holes. And uh, I mean, there's even people that I hear on podcasts that don't like me at all anymore, but they go, but I got to say, when I was 19, he told, he taught me all the shit that I love. <laughs> um, but you know, I think there was a thing like in the case of like, say, Reservoir Dogs, where um, it's one of the reasons why it did so well internationally was, um, uh, you know, it wasn't very much like an American gangster film. You know, it was kind of, kind of flying in the face of like the Scorsese type of gangster films. But it was very much like a Japanese Yakuza movie. 
and that's how they looked at it in Japan. They go, oh, wow, he must be a big fan of Yakuza films because, I mean, this could, you put Japanese Japanese people in and this could be a Yakuza movie tomorrow. And the same thing with uh, uh, with the Hong Kong film industry. Go, oh, well, this is like a triad movie. I mean, you put Chow Yun-Fat in there, so it's absolutely a, a triad movie. And it's the same thing like the uh, Fernando de Leo Italian movies. Or the same thing with... Uh, um, uh, like the Jean-Pierre Melville French films, you know, so that, you know, uh, so rather than being connected to American crime, from which I am connected to American crime films, but uh, like particularly Reservoir Dogs seems like, you know, uh, uh, associated with, with like the, the foreign model of gangster movies. You know, Quentin, last time we spoke with you, uh, you were about to become a father. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you are a father. Congratulations Thank to you. you, by the way. Um, <laughs> And little Leo gets a shout out. Great. Little Leo. <laughs> Who's not named after DiCaprio, by the way. I saw, yeah, yeah, I saw your Kimmel interview. That's the lion. I, I thought that was the greatest answer. That yeah, was fantastic. That was cool. <laughs> that was beautiful. But one of the things I asked you last time was, how do you think fatherhood will change you as a creative artist and a director? And at the time, you hadn't become a father yet, so you weren't entirely sure. You were thinking about limitations in terms of traveling and making the films you want to make. Now that you have a child, I'm curious, do you feel at all different creatively as an artist? Do you feel differently in terms of what you want to say as a director and maybe the films you want to make or write continuing forward? Nah, he has nothing to do with any of that, you know? (laughs) It's going to take him at least seven years, all right, you know, to see what his dad's done. Uh, And, uh, 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 um... (laughs) Oh, which one will you? Yeah, which one you want? Oh, at most seven years. All right, uh, <laughs> at most seven years. Uh, there'll be a couple of, you know, uh, 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 if he's inclined, I'll show him Kill Bill at five. All right. Uh, um, <laughs> he has a cartoon in it. It's perfect. All right. Yeah. Of, you would show them to your son out of order. You what? Them, you would show them out of order to your son? Well, yeah. No, you'll be. Uh, no, I figured. Yeah, of course. You know. Uh, 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 yeah, it'd be whatever he would be. Whatever's the first one he's right for, all right, that like would, would ring his bell. And I think, yeah, for a kid, yeah, Kill Bill's got to be the one to, Perfect, yeah, yeah. to start with. You know, uh, if he's uh, right for Django, you know, I mean, like, like maybe by, by, by six, he turns into this little hipster, all right, in black t shirts and electrical tape. Then I'll show him uh, uh, Pulp Fiction, all right, but uh, uh, <laughs> drinking coffee. Uh, no, okay, okay, fine. The gourmet shit. <laughs> yeah. But uh, oh, Reservoir Dogs, I'll start him off with that one. Uh, um, but no, nah, he doesn't have anything uh, 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 to do with that. No, I'm not one of those guys that like loses his balls, all right, the minute he has a kid, especially when it comes to his work and everything like that. That That's not me. Uh, uh, um, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm making it for him when he's 25 and he's like proud of his dad and proud of uh, his oeuvre. All right, you know. Um, um, but, okay, but, okay, so I, it wouldn't affect, like, it, it doesn't, uh, uh, um, doesn't affect it wouldn't affect me as far as like the material I'm going to do or I mean but you know it could affect me as a as a human being or right? yeah it could affect now exactly what that will be and how that will manifest itself I don't know and I I I, I can't even predict I mean um but I am officially living through all the clichés you hear about the uh uh when the you know cynical, cynical guy, you know, has a kid. Um, you know, uh, uh, I mean, I see Leo's name just written on a piece of paper and I burst into tears. Mm-hmm. All right. You know, just, you know, it's like, you know, it's just great. It's just like, I look at him and it's like, either I'm just laughing hysterically cause he's just really, really funny. Or I just look at him and I just burst into tears because he just touches me so much. Yeah. 
We've had a lot of fun talking about the Oscars uh, in our conversations and your uh, competition with Mark Bowl and how much fun that was <laughs> yeah. as you were going through uh, Hurt Locker. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, so we recently learned that one of your greatest collaborators, Samuel L. Jackson, is going to get a Lifetime Achievement Award. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, we finally, absolutely, but yeah, yeah. Long over. That's gonna be a good award ceremony, like Elaine May's getting one. You know, yeah, it's gonna be a good ceremony. What in a perfect world should Sam Jackson have won his Oscar for? Oh shit! <laughs> Frankly, Stephen. Yeah. Yeah, I think that yes. he should have won the Oscar for Stephen. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, Anytime it's announced that a certain actor is going to join your cast, especially if it's someone you've never worked with, I always think, oh my God, what is he going to do with this person? There are a lot of actors I love that I have a hard time imagining them in one of your films. Like one, Tom Hanks. I have a soft spot in my heart for Tom Hanks. And, and whenever I mention to people like Tom Hanks and Tarantino, they go, no, I wouldn't, like, you couldn't put Tom Hanks and Quentin Tarantino. Are there some actors that you love, but you just think, dude, you don't belong in my movies, man? Or, or, is, it, or is that more of a challenge? Well, okay, but that, you know, I mean, that's like, like, you know, you listen to these podcasts where the, where somebody is like, okay, well, what if, uh, what if Redford were to play the game? No, no, Redford couldn't play that. Redford doesn't have this. Or, uh, you know, Matt Damon. No, man, Matt Damon couldn't. They're like, fuck you. You guys don't know. You guys don't know how to cast people. All right. Uh, well, like, so you know, they're listening uh, to our show. Listening to our show. Yeah, yeah. Listening to Roblin a lot, I yeah, can yeah. tell. You know, they're actors. If I had the right part, Tom Hanks would be fantastic. I mean, like, there's nothing that really comes to mind that I've written so far that Tom Hanks would be right for, or else he probably would have played the role. All right. Because he would like to work with me and I'd like to work with him. But, uh, um, you know, but with the right role, yeah, he, he uh, I, I would, I would plug him in in a second, and, and, um, you know, and it's like, I mean, um, I mean, sometimes I'm not quite as much into, you know, playing with an actor's persona and either stretching it or, in, or, in, uh, uh, accentuating it the way I, I was in the past, um, you know. I'm not like that at all anymore. I mean, that's one of the biggest things that I've kind of left behind in like the 30 years I've been doing. It's one of the biggest things I've left behind in the last, I guess, everything after Kill Bill. I kind of more or less left that behind uh, because it's like, um, I mean, I used to be a thing where like, I would be so into an actor that I would completely change the character in order to work with this groovy actor or that groovy actor. Now I don't feel that way at all. Mm. Now I'm all about my characters. It's all about the characters. The actors are playing my characters, you know? And it's like, I, 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 uh, look, I have a great time with my actors and I love my actors, but, 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 you know, the character isn't what's important. That's what's important. And, um, uh, uh, yeah. So it's like, you know, so it's, you know, so it's less about playing off of anybody's image or their persona or what they've done in the past. I mean, every once in a while, I guess that can work out. Um, but, um, uh, for the most part, no, I'm just about like putting the right actor in the right character. Sure. Quinn, I, I found this really interesting going back to Hollywood for a second. And I, I don't know if this is interesting or not, but I found it interesting as I watched it. Kurt Russell is on screen in the film as one character. And then he's a narrator, and the narrator is not the same character he's playing in the movie. Yeah, can you speak on that? I found that to be really interesting because I, I guess when I first saw it, I just assumed it was, it was his the same character. guy. Yeah, but I wonder, can you speak on the distinction between those two? Because it's interesting. You have Kurt on screen, and mm-hmm. then you have him narrating, but it's not the same guy. I just didn't take it that seriously. I mean, it was like I, I needed a narrator, and 
I kind of didn't want to do it, but I was prepared to do it if I had to. Um, and, uh, and Kurt's got a, Kurt's got a, a, a really terrific voice. And I, I had about like, like four people come down and do the narration. Can we ask who? Oh, I don't want to, I don't want right. to say. All right. But I had about four different people come down and they were all just happy to come down and help me out and everything. And then, uh, but when Kurt came in, I just knew he was the guy. But there was also an aspect about Kurt doing one. He sounded good doing it. So that's that. But again, Kurt is the youngest you can be and actually be one of these actors that we're talking about because, you know, he was 12 when he did Lost in Space. And, you know, he, uh, you know, he actually acted on, on uh, the High Chaparral. He actually acted on, on Bonanza. He actually acted on The Virginian and on these shows. You know, he was like a, you know, a boy and getting older, but he was, you know, uh, you know he is like uh, in that same vein as a Burt Reynolds or a Michael Parks or these kind of guys, except he just was so young when he started. But not only that, his dad was one of those guys. His dad was like a cowboy actor. And William Whitney came to his house and had dinner a couple of times. Mm. And Kurt just kind of worked with everybody. I mean, it's like, just when I think I've talked to Kurt about every actor he could possibly work with, and I find some old Disney movie, he worked with Nick Adams? I've never talked to, Rick, I've never talked to Kurt about working with Nick Adams. That's really, really cool. <laughs> uh, um, uh, so, you know, so there was an aspect of him being, uh, of, of, of him bearing witness because he was there at that time. I knew he was playing a character in the movie, but I just, I, I didn't take that. I didn't take that that seriously. I didn't think it was a big, I didn't think it was a thing. Cool. Just curious. Not to keep dwelling on your final film, and this is not about plot or details, but are there, since there's so many actors that are, uh, we identify them as Quentin Tarantino ensemble members. Mm -hmm. Has anyone come to you and said like, hey, make sure, make sure I'm in that last one. <laughs> um, I think since Harvey Cattell gave me my career and Sam Jackson, all right, uh, 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 I, I, I think they would be nonplussed if they weren't in the last movie, and I can appreciate that. Uh, um, uh, uh, so I, I, I can definitely appreciate that. Uh, but uh, no, no one, uh, they don't know what's, yeah, no one knows what's gonna, what it's going to be. Gotcha. Uh, I spoke to Harvey Cattell the other day, uh -huh. and uh, I asked him, as one does, and I asked him, I said, you know, I've been fascinated with, with The Wolf ever since Pulp Fiction came out. Like, in, in the course of 15 minutes, I have wondered, who is this guy? You know, he answers the phone at a party. You know, it's 30 minutes away. I'll be yeah. there in 10. He shows up, you know, under nine 10, minutes. nine minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Tuxedo yeah. at like, you know, 7.30 in the morning. And I, said, and I, and I, I asked him, I said, who, who is this guy? I said, I would watch another movie for that. I would watch a TV show with this guy. And Harvey Keitel says, I've been asking Quentin that for years. He goes, and he said, if you ever see Quentin Tarantino, you should ask him. He goes, I want to know. So, now that I'm here with you, like, who is the wolf? What, what is, who is that guy? He's the guy who solves problems. <laughs> you know, it's not that, okay, it's not that they couldn't have cleaned the car without him. <laughs> it's they were panicking and they didn't know what to do and they needed an adult presence who had a... Uh, you know, uh, 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 who's able to solve problems? Say, look, calm down. It's fine. We have eight. We have twelve minutes. We're fine. Okay, just sweep up the blood. Put the uh, 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 put the blankets on the car and let's go. Okay, you know, you know, he's actually a director. He's coming in where there's chaos and showing them methodically. He's 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 not uh, uh, he's not stressing out, and he's just looking at it and just giving them direction. And then they go and they follow his direction. And then they get out of there when they're supposed to. 
You know, Quentin, as we're sitting here in the New Beverly, I, I, I'm sure you've talked about this a, b- a bunch before, but I would love to just know the history in terms of your, you wanting to buy it, in terms of wanting to keep it always on film. And I'm also just interested in knowing how you keep your film collection, uh, the actual film collection itself. And is it like, do you keep it in storage? I, I'm just very interested to know like kind of that whole process. And when you play a print here mm-hmm. that's from your own collection, like is, is that like a security thing? It's delivered to make sure it's not being scratched. I'm just very interested to know that whole process of kind of how you operate. Yeah, it's not the Andromeda strain here. I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> this, is a, this is a working business, all right? So we're not, uh, we, we did good care of our prints, but it's not that rarefied air. They're thrown in a pickup truck usually and <laughs> driven from a vault to here, all right? <laughs> uh, um, uh, so, uh, well, no, how I, uh, I've, been, I've been coming here, um, you know, basically ever since I, uh, was driving. All right. So I guess like around, uh, I think I started driving like around 78 or 79 and like I, I, I drove all over Los Angeles County and passed it to go to see this weird screening here. And uh, I'm not here, but this weird screening, I mean, I, but I, before I could even drive, I was taking the bus to crazy places, crazy grindhouses just to see Rolling Thunder one more time, you know, before it came out on video and I'd, I'd follow movies all over town. Uh, but, uh, you know, this place started, I think, uh, started as a, a Sherman started as a revival house around 78. And so I think around like, like 79 or 80 is when I started, uh, uh, coming down here. And that was when, you know, there was, uh, there was a lot of uh, revival houses to choose from. The new art was doing, uh, was, uh, was operating full as a, as a, um, a revival house. So it was the Fox Venice in Venice. I my, saw my first Godard movies during a Godard festival at the Fox Venice. And then there was a, 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 the Vista was either showing foreign films or had a revival schedule. And then there'd be other words. I'm like the El Rey was like playing, you know, there, there, there'd be, there, there'd be like, uh, those were the mainstays. And then there was also UCLA and, and the Bing Museum. But uh, those were the mainstays. But then, the, then another year would happen with like two other little revival houses would open for like a year and a half. And, uh, so, you know, so I was just, uh, always a fan of going to, uh, uh, revival cinemas. But the thing that, really hit hard with the, uh, the new Beverly after seeing a, a ton of movies here. Uh, um, I think Grace is here. My first girlfriend, she's here and we, uh, we say, yeah, there you are. I, th- I thought that was you. All right. Uh, um, much to her chagrin, we saw Sallow 120 days of Sodom here. She's wearing a mask because she's still mad at me. All right. Not the, no COVID thing, all right? Uh, I, I think I drug her here to see King of New York, too. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and it was annoying because I quoted the movie the entire running time, all right? Uh, uh, especially when Larry Fishburne talked. All right. Um, but the thing is, though, um, uh, after Reservoir Dogs came out, uh, it did really great when it played here. And then out of the blue, uh, Sherman starts showing it every uh, uh, Saturday at midnight. And it became the permanent midnight show for about uh, like a year and a half or, or, or two years. And, and, and it held for two years. Then just as it was running out of steam and they were getting ready to get rid of it, that's when Pulp Fiction opened. And then it, and then it played for like another two years as uh, a midnight screening. And so, um, so just the idea that during those four years, Anytime I want, I could just drive down Beverly Boulevard and just look at the marquee and say, Reservoir Dogs. 
every Friday and Saturday at midnight. Just made me feel like a million dollars. It just made me feel great. And to know that I had done a movie that, you know, uh, you know, could hold a spot uh, uh, at midnight for that long and that it had that kind of fans and that people could always see it. You know, yeah, it was already out on video for a long time by that point, but you could still see it on 35 millimeter here. And um, one of the reasons that I wanted to keep it uh, film was, I, well, because of, that's- It's better. Yeah, it's better, I think, all right? Uh, but especially about the fact that that was right when things were changing over to digital. And so- like the American cinema tech and all these people are like, well, just the reality of the business uh, now is that you have to be able to show digital and 35 millimeter. And I go, you know what? I'm going to prove those guys fucking wrong. Hell yeah. <laughs> I'm going to show that that's a reality if you accept it, but that's not necessarily the reality, you know, and, and, and we do it. We do it. Always on film. Yeah, always on film. Always on film. Well, it was also the whole thing where it's like, you know, something was showing it here or something was showing there. And I go, Okay, well, is it on film? I mean, if it's just digital, I can watch the DVD at home. I don't need to watch television in public. All right, you know. Uh, uh, and so there was always this guessing game now when it plays other places. Here, no guessing game. <laughs> um, Quentin, you have said in the past when you sit down to write a screenplay, you don't know the ending. You know, you're writing it in order, and you talked about Bastard. You didn't know where you're going to go with the ending of that. Um, but, and people are going to realize when they read this book, like, we're going to all now follow you as an author, Quentin Tarantino, a successful author, because I think you're a terrific writer. Oh, thank you. Was it the same case with this? No, uh, I knew what the ending was going to be of this. Yeah, I knew it was going to be the Trudy ending, yeah. Oh, did you? And then yeah. also, I just want to talk to you about ending a scene versus ending a chapter. Mm -hmm. Were they significantly different for you? Because I, I was intrigued by where certain scenes carried out longer than we knew from the film. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that's a good question. I mean, it's... Well, it's different from ending a scene because the movie is a collection of a lot of different scenes, but it's similar to uh, ending a set piece. Because okay. when you end a set piece, it ends on with a, a, a you know, like uh, a strong stroke, but hopefully, you know, it, it ends with a strong stroke that, that sums up that little set piece and now you move on to something else. I mean, the, uh, um, you know, you, you, know, you want to you wanna come up with a really cool line at the end of a chapter that both like, Finishes the chapter, but hooks you in to uh, 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 to the next chapter, or or hooks you into the next time you come back. If if is is you're going to hop to another story. Uh, there's a great little moment in the book where Cliff mm -hmm. comes to see a movie here. Yeah, I was just wondering, looking at the audience, where did he sit? <laughs> oh, he sat. Uh, uh, he's sitting where that guy sits. All right. Uh, 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 no, no, oh, the, uh, the guy in front of you, Fred. This guy. Yeah, 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 this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So oh, Reggie. That's Reggie. Okay, yeah. All right. I was going to say the guy with the mohawk. No, this is the lights hitting your head in the wrong way. No, he's sitting where Reggie's sitting. All Reggie, right. you're in Cliff's seat. Yeah. Why does Cliff sit there? Well, because he likes to be close up to the screen. You know, he's, he doesn't want to sit in the front row. He wants to, second row is maybe too close, but third row is perfect. And he throws his moccasin feet over the, <laughs> over the front of it, just like Sharon. All right. And, uh, and watches uh, the Carol Baker double feature. Speaking of coming to the New Beverly, uh, you and Madre Avery were here last week for yeah. Pulp Fiction at a midnight showing. You just showed up and watched it with the audience. And obviously one of my favorite moments in Hollywood is watching Margot Robbie, Sharon Tate, watch herself and wait for the laughs and wonder whether or not they're going to laugh at her pratfall and things like that. 
I was curious as you sit in the theater all these years later and you watch an audience watch Pulp Fiction, what are your favorite scenes to watch the audience react to? Are there still ones that like you can't wait? I mean, even though it's been out for so long, everyone here probably had already seen it. But what are the scenes you can't wait to hear reactions for in that one? Yeah, that's interesting, actually, because um, well, I always hear how I, I never go to the the uh, uh, um, I don't make it out to the Tarantino Midnight's that often, and I've I've heard that the Pulp Fiction like audience is really raucous. I think me and Roger stunned everybody, so I uh, I think they were off their feed that night. All right, they were like like ah, oh, what the fuck's going on? We're, we didn't sign up for this. What the hell? All right, so I think we kind of like fucked them up a little bit. So we didn't we didn't get the normal normal response. What would be a normal reaction for uh, that film um, like that that you love to watch? Well, like I think well, like uh, um, I get okay. Well, well if you were ask me closer to when the film come out or in, in the first three years, it would probably be a li- my answer would probably be different. But I, now I guess it's probably the, it's it, now I guess it's probably either the, uh, 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 the dancing scene, the twist contest, and then the whole, uh, 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 them blowing Marvin's head off in the car and, you know, <laughs> and the you know, all covered in blood f- fighting about it. <laughs> um, it was interesting when you talked about Kurosawa and the, mm-hmm. um, in the book and how he had to come along at that time, you know, like that, that generation was right for oh, him. Oh, the that, Turgeon melodrama time of the fifties. Yeah, absolutely. Like that decade fit for him. And I think that you're one of those filmmakers in the nineties who came along at the right time. Yeah. You absolutely spawned a ton of Tarantino clones, essentially. Um, did you ever watch any of their films and at least say like, Oh, they did that pretty well. Oh yeah. No, I watched a bunch of them actually. I, I saw a lot of them, you know, uh, um, People were like uh, saying, hey, does that piss you off, man, that, you know, eight heads in a duffel bag or, you know, uh, uh, you know whatever Go. it was. Yeah. Or boondock Saints. Yeah. Boondock Saints or something like that. And um, and like, no, I was flattered. Like, I didn't think anybody. I thought I was better than all those guys. I thought my stuff was, was actually ultimately funnier. All right. Um uh, but I like, but, but, you know, but I graded them on a, on a, on an interesting curve. Hey, that's pretty good. Oh, that was a good one. Oh, that was some good dialogue. Oh, that was funny. Oh, that was a neat bit. Um, uh, but the thing about it was, you know, because I always looked at Pulp Fiction as sort of, like I said, uh, almost earlier, but I don't think hundred percent said it, um, that my gangster film and Pulp Fiction and even Reservoir Dogs to some degree, you know, was to Scorsese's style of gangster film, which was the style of gangster film at that time, especially by the early nineties. Um, uh, my film was to them what um, Sergio Leone's dollars films were to the John Ford films, were to the Raul Walsh films, were the were to the Howard Hawk movies. And um, so then, and I, so I mean, I literally always, I even referred to like Pulp Fiction as like a rock and roll spaghetti Western. And that's why they wear suits and they wear this, you know, these, these like kind of costumes that, that I'm putting them in, you know, cause they're like my knights and this is their type of armor. And, and then even all that surf music just seemed like rock and roll, Eno Morricone music to me. And, um, but the thing about that really showed the effect that Leone had is, yeah, he did his three or four movies, five movies that he did, but then he, uh, um, started an entire subgenre, And then there was, you know, uh, uh, 300 spaghetti Westerns that wouldn't have existed without Leone's film that came out in the wake. And so then finally, so then, you know, for me, 
to all of a sudden now for five years, every gangster movie, you know, has this patina of from my films and, and they, they, they have quirky, cool music in it. And they talk about TV shows. They, they talk about all this shit that they never talked about in gangster films. That, you know, uh, that actually made me feel more like a Leone-esque success than anything else was just the fact that like he had a bunch of people, uh, 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 um, filling in the subgenre that he created, the fact that, that for about five years there, that was the situation with me. Now, my favorite of all of them, easily, Love in a 45. Oh, nice. The Cardi Tarkington one. That was, I thought that was uh, the, the, the best script of them. It was the wittiest. I, I really liked that one a lot. Excellent. You know, piggybacking on that idea, because you have permeated pop culture in the way you have, you don't have to watch many movies to see other people just straight up referencing your films. I think uh, Captain America and Winter Soldier, like it's, yeah, yeah. it's in the book, the things he needs to learn about. The one that always... <laughs> shocks me when I forget it and then re-remember it is that there's literally a Pulp Fiction reference in fucking Space Jam. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Like they, we're, and and uh, so I'm just going like whenever there's one you, in Ants too. When they, ants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so like what, what is it when you're wa- randomly watching a movie for your own enjoyment and then they reference your movies what is that feeling like? Well it's like? rarely a surprise especially when it's something like because like they, they usually put it in the trailer alright. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I remember I think it was one of the last Shreks, all right, when all the prin- all the Disney princesses get together. Movies. Yeah, yeah, when the Disney princesses get together, they play that that Kill Bill. Dun, dun, boom, ba, boom, ba, boom, ba, boom, boom, I'm like, well, I know where that's fucking coming from. And, <laughs> and it's all the Disney princesses, like, looking all badass walking down a hallway. I'm like, all right, that was pretty cool. Did one of them have the tracksuit? Yeah, yeah. No, they didn't have the tracksuit. They didn't have the <laughs> there's a Kill Bill theme going on. <laughs> well, and also I took it as a... Uh, um, I took it as a, a high compliment that when, like uh, the, I saw when, when Team America came out, I saw it like five or six times. All right. And that's a movie that nobody in Hollywood wanted to be referenced in <laughs> because they, they skewered everybody. All right. But when then they get the Team America gets together and then they play that Kill Bill music to, like, to pump you up, I go, oh, my God. I'm the only Hollywood person in the, in the in, in, I'm the only person in town that's referenced respectfully right, in Team America. <laughs> I read Matt Damon says he signs more pictures of the doll from Team America than he does of himself. Matt Damon. <laughs> I remember I was going out with the going out with the girl. Why are they clowning him so bad? <laughs> Quentin, uh, this is something I've always wanted to ask you. I've never had the chance to ask these before. Um, the the wonder, the the long tracking shot that you do in Pulp Fiction when Jules and Vincent arrive at Brett's apartment and they go down the oh, yeah. ha- and they go down the hallway and they have the conversation away from the camera. Um, it's one of my favorite scenes you've ever directed. It's it's brilliantly written. I was wondering what your memories were of that shot. How many times it took to get the wonder? Um, what challenges you ran into? And just kind of the idea of leaving the camera down the hallway. And obviously having us listen to their conversation. I just always thought that was an interesting, really interesting piece of information. Oh, uh, well, um, uh, I can't remember if it was like either like, like nine or 13 takes. I can't remember which one it was. And, and um, Stacey might remember. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, I think it was like nine or 13 takes, something like that. And, um, well, the thing about it, it was, uh, um, uh, a buddy of mine lived in that, uh, apartment building, Bob Murawski, uh, who uh, won the Oscar for uh, Hurt Locker, who stole the Oscar from Sally <laughs> for Hurt Locker. All right, uh, uh. 
but yeah, uh, uh, we, we, we're, we're friends now too, but, but we were buddies then and uh, uh, he lived in that building and I always thought that building was really, really cool. Uh, the funny thing about it was um, uh, after uh, we shot the movie, while we were editing the movie is when the Northridge earthquake happened and that leveled that building. So that building is no longer there anymore. It was right by the, uh, um, uh, the Denny's. That's right by Channel 5. It was right there. Anyway, um, anyway, that building doesn't exist anymore. And so I'm glad I caught it in, in, um, uh, in Pulp Fiction. But the thing about it, though, was when we went down there, well, it, you know, it also was a building that, like, it had long halls that way. So you could actually literally take them from the elevator and, and, and do the whole loop without it, like, being uh, 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 contrived. Uh, but back then, also, I was also really, I was also into being, uh, um, uh, you know, doing sequences that were remote. You know that we're back away, and we see the two characters, like you know, like in Pulp Fiction. I mean, in Reservoir Dogs, when you see Harvey Cattell and and Tim Roth down the hallway. Yeah. I was into doing Godardian shit like that back then, and uh, uh, and I was really into frames inside of frames, and you know, uh, 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 putting characters inside of frames, and not just doing okay, your shot, my shot, your shot, my shot. I was into uh, you know uh, uh, tableaus, you know, that put them at a distance, and we look at it this way. Um, and, you know, and then that just worked out perfect, all right, for that scene because, like, that would have been boring to just hang out with them by the front of the door. But then that kind of brought a nice little bit to the last little part of the scene. And and, and actually, it didn't play Godardian because it just sounded like, okay, no, their business is at the door. But they're going to finish this one piece of business before they get down to their real business. They even say, let's get into character. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's amazing. One of the- Danny DeVito wanted me to cut that part out. <laughs> wait, 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 what, really? Why? Yeah, well, he just thought the scene went on too long. He was like, okay, so like, would they go and they get to the door and maybe cut that part out there? <laughs> I'm not goofing on him. He has the right to say anything, you know? Yeah. He was one of the producers on the film. And say, yeah, okay. Well, I, 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 I probably doesn't remember it now, you know? All right, but at the, you know, but at the moment when you're studying it, you know, like, eh, do we really need 12 minutes here? <laughs> one of the beautiful things about novelizations which you were discussing is that quite often they're written off of the initial draft you know before things get shot and so um, I don't want to spoil too much but there's big changes in this uh, film and one involves Trudy on the phone with um, with Rick oh, yeah. essentially now I was stunned to see that that she's on the poster uh, yeah, uh -huh. holding the phone yeah did you shoot that scene did you yeah that scene exists does it really yeah that scene exists yeah Wow. And it just, was it ever going to be part of? Well, when we shot it, we thought it was going to be, you know. Uh, um, look, that was my favorite scene in the script. So, like, the idea that that wouldn't be in the movie was unfathomable. Mm -hmm. um, that was my favorite scene in the script. I think it was probably Leo's favorite scene that he shot. Um we were in tears. It was the only time. I mean, I've, I've, I've got misty-eyed every once in a while shooting uh, this scene versus that scene. But that scene, I mean, like, we, we, uh, uh, me and Julia were in tears at every, at the time, as we finished every take. So the, uh, and we were just really proud of that sequence. So the idea that it wouldn't be in it in the movie was just, what the fuck you're talking about? Of course it's going to be in the, in, in the film. Um, but you know the reason it's not in the film is is it's it's a two it's a twofold reason. One, it's an ending. It would like it, it seems like an ending to the movie. Um, also, which actually was okay in the script because in the script, I looked at as everything that happens in February as part of a three act structure, and then the stuff that happens on the night of the murder as an epilogue. But then, but that was the wrong way to think about it. Once we started putting the movie together, we go, no, no, no. The, the stuff that happens um, 
in August isn't an epilogue. It's the third act. We've got to look at it that way. And so, uh, and look, and they, they pulled off the scene. The scene's terrific. So it's not about them. But when I, but when we watched a, a, a really worked on assembly, you know, something that for me and Fred had gone through it, uh, you know, really hard and we're really happy with it. When we watched it, we realized after the Spawn Ranch, well, the Spawn Ranch, that, that, that ends the February section. That's just, there's no coming back from that. That is the ending of that. And now we can't just end it with the Spawn Ranch. So the idea is after Spawn Ranch, we have to wrap up February as soon as we possibly can. And then once we do, then we go into August. You know, so it was like, you know, we just realized like, no, there's just, you know, the Spawn Ranch is the scene. That ends that story for that day. And, you know, and, you know, and, and that happens a lot in movies. Like you, you've dropped scenes that are really terrific, but it's like, but, but, but a timeline imposes itself on the cut. And if it falls outside of that timeline, then it, no matter how good it is, it's got to go. That's fascinating. I'm glad Sean brought up that chapter because there's a paragraph in that chapter, the last chapter that, that meant a lot to me. And I actually mentioned it to the guys earlier today. And it's after a book filled with Rick Dalton, just bitching about his career isn't where he wants it to be. (laughs) And he's not getting the roles he wants. And why is Jim Stacy the lead over this? And at the end of the book, in this short little paragraph, he says, you know what? Like, life's not that bad, you know? And I've, I've made some really cool movies and I've got to kiss some beautiful co-stars and I've got to travel the world. And he kind of pauses and he goes, maybe I don't really have anything. To, like, maybe it's okay. Maybe. Well, yeah, it's like, you know, it's a situation. Uh, I mean, I don't want to go deep into that. Literally is the end of the book. All right. Uh, uh, um, you know, but um, I mean, it's not a, it's nothing that deep, but there was something moving about it's not deep it's not profound but there's something moving about this little girl making him realize that uh uh uh, seeing his situation with more gratitude is there anyone that's ever done that for you um not like not like not the way you mean it or not the not in a context like that but uh um Okay, I'll, I'll give one. This is a bad example, but but it did, it did ring a bell. Uh, um, uh, you know, when you do a, a you know like a a, a four day movie press junket, you know it's not easy. I mean, it's not it, it's not working construction, wrecking a house, and wrecking out the. Uh, We're uh, doing uh, our uh, best, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> we do this because we do the TV ones too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's like you know, it's uh, you know. Uh, uh, it's fine. It's the, there's far hard. There's a lot harder jobs than that, but you know, it's, it, it takes a lot out of you. And, and especially at the beginning of it, when you like, know, okay, I have four days coming and now I'm just arriving at the four seasons at, at again, don't cry, don't cry a river for me. <laughs> all right. Uh, 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 but I'm arriving at the four seasons. And I know all this is in front of me. And so you just kind of like, okay, uh, and it's never that bad, but like, again, you're looking up at the mountain and you still have to climb the mountain. So you're a little, uh, you know, uh, when you, you, you know, get to the hotel and get ready to start this whole thing that's going to go on for the next nine hours today. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm kind of feeling that trepidation when I did uh, uh, Kill Bill. So I'm getting ready to start this whole product. I'm, you know, and it's not just even these like four days at the four seasons. You know, you're going to go all around the planet Earth and do this. So this is literally just the beginning of it. Um, and so I'm like feeling that kind of like, you know, dread about what's going to happen and stealing myself up for it. But then I see David Carradine. 
and he hasn't done a big movie like this in a long time. And, uh, and you know, he's, he's done press for a lot longer than I ever have, but he's pissing his pants. He's so fucking excited. He's so fucking excited. He can't wait to talk about Kill Bill. He, he's so happy to be Bill. And like, you know, he, uh, he has going to have everybody's ear for, you know, he's going to go all around the world, you know, for the next four months. And he fucking can't wait. All right. And it was like, yeah, I got to look at it like David Carradine. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I don't, doesn't, I don't think all that makes me the most jaded asshole in the world. All right. But having said that, I was taking it for granted. And then he showed me, no, don't fucking take it for granted. This is a special moment and just, you know, appreciate it. You know, you've got the camera, you've got the microphone, you've got their attention. Go with it. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I love that. Quinn, one of the my favorite moments in the book is something that was so relatable. Um, I'll keep it vague in the sense that you describe that Roman Polanski wanted the audience to tilt their head in a certain way while watching Rosemary's Baby. Like he, he, he frames a shot in the film specifically so that the audience is like going like this. I was curious, um, in terms of your filmography, have have you ever had intentions of having audiences move their heads like that? And are there or are there other uh, instances of that that you've experienced as, a, as just a film fan where you've moved your head in, in a scene to kind of look around the frame a little bit? No, I've made the audiences do things against their will, though. All right. All right. Uh, we all try to look in that briefcase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because I can, all right. Just for the exact reason why Roman does it, you know. It's like I go, oh, I got them to laugh at that. All right, or oh, I got them to do this. Why? Why? Just because I wanted to. Make 300 strangers do my bidding. <laughs> I feel that's the job of a director is to manipulate all of you, <laughs> to do things you would not do if you had better sense. All right? But you're under my control right now. <laughs> uh, I think we have time for one more. And then, of course, all these people are going to want to listen to the chapter reading and then get their books signed. So um, I want to thank you on behalf of the show for coming. And oh, we'll, my pleasure. Thanks. Guys. We'll I really appreciate okay. you guys coming down from New York and everything um, to do this. <laughs> Well, I said we had time for one more. <laughs> um, the book is filled of, of great insights into the industry, like we have been talking about with all these questions that we bring up. And one in particular um, was that Rick, and you guys know this from the movie, he keeps getting approached with the great escape yeah. story and how close were you to getting it? And then mm -hmm. he finally explains that like he was never going to get it for all the different reasons that they never, yeah. and you never cast the fourth person on the list. By then you make a new list. Yeah. And when I read that, I thought like, this industry is so crushing. Like, is there truth to that? Like, is when you're writing from oh, that? Oh, that's completely true. Is yeah. it really? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, you don't, you know, it's like uh, uh, you're doing a big epic and you have like four people on the list. By the time you've been turned down by the first three, then the fourth one, you know, wow. Well, what the fuck are we doing here? Uh, a high school play? No, come on. Let's like, okay, let's rethink this whole fucking thing. All right, you know. But, uh, um, you know, but uh, well, one, I, I, I think the three Georges monologue that he gives is one of my better monologues. I yes. think it's a really, really good monologue. And I think it finally found the, like the right home. All right. At that, that point in the, in, in, in the piece. Um, but one of the things I also like about it, because, uh, you know, it's easy to have a little fun at Rick's expense. All right. Because he's that kind of character. You can, it's easy to have fun at his expense through the movie and even throughout the book to some degree or another. Um, but that actually shows that, uh, um, you know, he's, he, he's actually more self-aware than you, than that if you're not taking him seriously enough that you might think. And he's, uh, you know, and, and, but, but it also, it's also reveals the anguish that he has about it. I mean, it's not real anguish if people didn't bring it up for the next 
uh, you know, eight years, you know, and, and like they say about it, you know, it's like, yeah, okay. So Jim Stacy brings it up on Lancer. So is that true about you almost getting the McQueen part? But I mean, he's had to put up with that. You know, he's, he does the Green Hornet and Van Williams is sitting there in his full Green Hornet regalia. So is it true that you almost got the Steve McQueen role? You know, or Ron Eli na- half naked in his, uh, or practically naked uh, in his loincloth as Tarzan. So is it true that you almost got the uh, McQueen role? He's had to ask, answer to it all these times and now if he almost did get it that would be different he uses the example of caesar uh, uh, de nova all right who almost got the part of uh uh and ben hur as opposed to charlton heston and he goes well look he almost did get it that would be legitimate okay but i never stood a fucking chance and here's why i never stood a chance and he goes through every reason why every one of those actors would have gotten it before him and he's right about everything he says yeah well, um, I think we're at, I think we're out of time yeah. <laughs> because we got a lot of things to get to. Um, we want to thank Quentin Tarantino for joining the Real Blend podcast. Thank of you, course, and for coming out to the thank New you guys to spend time with all of us. You, Hope man. you guys enjoyed it. At Parker, our purpose is simple: we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.